I have to say, the thing I was most excited about when I heard we were doing a throwback Sunday and that I was indeed going to be preaching on that Sunday was that I got to preach for an hour and a half because that's what they used to do uh, a long time ago in the old days. And so I hope you guys went to the bathroom before you came in this morning. Uh, no, it won't be an hour and a half. I actually found out pretty late that I was going to be preaching on uh, Throwback Sunday. And so thanks, worship team and Keith, for leading us in those songs. Um, today we're going to be back in our series in the book of Philippians. We're continuing through week by week here. We're in week three, so we'll be looking at chapter two, verses one through 11. So if you'd like to get your Bibles ready there. Uh, what we've really seen so far is a compassionate letter from Paul a compassionate and joyous letter to the Philippian church in the midst of Paul being in chains, in prison. He's writing this letter, and yet he has joy in the midst of his trials and in the midst of his suffering. And so Philippians is a very, very encouraging letter, and we've seen that thus far, and we'll continue to see it. Uh, And last week, we really saw Paul's joy in the Philippian church partnering together with him in the gospel. He was so joyous about this that they were one of the only churches that supported him in his missionary endeavor to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he is thanking them, he is revealing the way he prays for them, and he is just talking about the advance of the gospel. And so he, he shifts somewhat to a gospel focus uh, in the letter here in chapter 2. And Duane finished up in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 last week. And so I'm going to summarize the end of chapter 1 for us as we move into chapter 2. So what Paul's talking about is he's brought us to a point of unity. Unity in the gospel. He says, "Only only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are striving side by side with one mind, for the faith of the gospel. And so he talks about unity in the gospel. That's the focus of the sermon this morning, is gospel humility, gospel unity. And Paul talks about at the end of chapter 1, unity in the midst of persecution coming from the outside. He said, there's people who are going to persecute you, just as they have persecuted me. Expect that. You're a follower of Christ. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus suffered, so likewise will we. Don't let that destroy your unity. In the midst of persecution coming from the outside, don't let that destroy your unity. Stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he begins to talk about some disunity that's actually happening within the walls of the church. And so he turns his focus to the church at Philippi, away from the persecutors coming from the outside, and to what's going on right here inside the walls. That is where they were experiencing this disunity. And so in the midst of being an extremely encouraging letter, Paul does offer a bit of a warning or even a mild correction here to the Philippian church because of this disunity that was rising in the church. And so... If you have a bulletin, go ahead and pull it out, and uh, I'll just walk you through what we're going to be looking at this morning. The first is Paul's plea for unity. He pleads with the Philippian church to be unified within the walls. And then he addresses unity's greatest threat, which is what the threat was in the Philippian church, and also what the threat is in our church 
and in every church, which is people with prideful hearts. And then Paul turns our attention to Jesus and to the gospel and seeks to show us how to be humble and how to serve each other. And then he effectively humbles us with the gospel as well. So allow me to read the text. We'll begin in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come here and be with us, that as we look into your word, that your spirit would convict us of sin, that your spirit would comfort us where we need it, that your spirit would pull the scales off of our eyes and allow us to see truth and allow our hearts to submit to the truths we see in your word. Pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we begin here, Paul begins with his plea for unity to the Philippian church, and he does this in a very interesting way. He actually does it by addressing all the things that are actually uniting them together already. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... He's not questioning whether these things are actually there. He's actually saying, since these things are there. He's talking about the experience of encouragement in Christ that the Philippian church felt together. They were united in that. They felt Christ's love. They experienced one and the same spirit. They were united in these things. And even in affection and sympathy, and it doesn't read like this in the English, but in the Greek, when it talks about affection and sympathy, it actually talks about the churches uniting to show affection and sympathy to Paul. It talks about them being uniting and them caring for Paul. And, and we've seen that in previous verses in Dwayne's sermon. They were caring for Paul in the midst of him being in prison. They were united in Christ, experiencing him, and they were united in their care for Paul, showing affection and sympathy to them. When I began to think about that, I began to think about what unites us as a church? What unites the larger church expressed around the world in local congregations? You know, when you come to Fairlawn on Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, throughout the week, different activities, what do you come here for? What unites you to the people around you? Is it sports, 
hobbies, fishing, shopping, politics. A lot of these things have the ability to unite us together, but we have to understand that it is crucial for us to understand that what unites us as the church is Jesus, is the gospel. That's why we meet together. We meet together because of Jesus and for the sake of the glory of his name and proclaiming the gospel. So let us not forget that. Paul's pointing out what unites us together. It is the gospel. But he says that there's something lacking. There's something lacking in the joy that he feels for the Philippian church. Verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul talked about how the Philippian church was his joy. He had so much joy in them. But he says there's one thing, one thing that is lacking. Complete my joy. And what is that that is lacking? Oneness of mind and love for one another. It was beginning to creep its, its ugly head up in the Philippian church. And so Paul addresses this oneness of mind. Be of one mind. Having the same love. What love? The love that you felt in Christ. The love that you've experienced in Him. The love that you've been united by. Show that love to each other. That was beginning to not happen within the walls at the church at Philippi. And as he calls them to one mind, it would naturally lead us back to 127 where he says, striving side by side with what? With one mind for the faith of the gospel. He's talking about being in one, of one mind in the gospel which will naturally cause us to love one another. To, ex- to express amongst each other what we have already experienced in Christ. Have the same love that you've experienced. So his desire for the Philippian church and for us is to be unified in Jesus, in the gospel, and to display that within the walls. But there's a problem, right? There's a reason that that's not happening in the Philippian church and potentially not happening as it ought to here. And that is because we're a bunch of people who are gathered together in a body who are sinful, right? Because we're not perfect. Paul begins to turn to unity's greatest threat, which is that of a prideful heart. That's what was manifesting itself in the Philippian church. Verse 3, he points it out. He gets right to the point. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You see, there were people in the church at Philippi who were acting out of a, comp- a, a, a of an attitude of competition with one another. They weren't. They were being selfish. They were being conceited, thinking only of themselves. They weren't serving one another. They weren't loving one another. So Paul says, "Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, from a prideful heart. Do nothing from a prideful heart." So. What is pride? Let's talk about that for a minute to understand better what Paul is getting at. What is pride? How do we define it? This is in your bulletin. Pride is the desire which refuses to depend on God and be subject to Him, but attributes to self the honor due His name. There's many ways that pride manifests itself in our lives, and we'll look at those in just a minute. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, 
Uh, just a side note, my ABS is probably going to find it funny that I'm quoting C.S. Lewis because uh, we went through mere Christianity as an ABF, and I disagreed a lot with his method in that book and some of the things he said. But nevertheless, in his chapter on pride, he hits it home. He really hits it right here. This is what he says. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Do we think about pride in those ways? Do we think about pride as being, or do we think about all of these other sins as being mere flea bites in comparison to that of pride? I don't think so. And I think that's the case because we all struggle with pride, right? Pride is very, very deceptive. And that's what's so dangerous about it. It hides extremely well. Pride is the desire to be your own authority in life, not submitting to God, not submitting to anyone else. Pride is seeking to claim the glory for yourself that is rightly due to God alone. And before our pride tells us as we sit here and as we see this and as we hear this that we don't struggle with pride, um, C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, True Greatness, says this, Though it, pride, shows up in many different forms and to differing degrees, it infects us all. The real issue is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. I have a little exercise for us that I thought would be helpful. If you have a bulletin, go ahead and pull it out and a pen perhaps. Um, I think it's really important for us to regularly hold ourselves up to this mirror of identifying pride in our life, being willing to put ourselves in front of the mirror and analyze ourselves and say, where is pride manifesting itself in my life? So I have a list here of the characteristics of prideful people, and I'll make a comment on a couple of them as we go, but if you would be so bold as to just check as we go down through, that's the way pride manifests itself in my life. That's it. I know that's me. Number one, proud people have a critical, fault-finding spirit. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Proud people reject authority. Proud people have to prove that they are right. A side note there. If you're married or if you're single, you know that this is true, right? But especially if you're married. I can't tell you how hard it is for me that one time a year that I'm actually right for me to like not just like go to Abby and be like, I told you I was right about this. It takes so much in me to just say, it's okay. She doesn't have to know you were right. Why is that? It's because I'm prideful. It's because my pride says, she has to know. She has to know that you were right and that she was wrong. 
I'm sure other married people here can attest to that reality, especially the men. Continuing on, proud people are self-protective of their time, their rights, and their reputation. Proud people desire to be served. Proud people keep track of how many likes they get on their Facebook posts. Proud people are quick to blame others. Proud people are unapproachable or defensive when criticized. Proud people are concerned with being respectable. They work to protect their own image and reputation. This is huge, guys. This one is huge in our world, in our culture. How many of you, over the last couple weeks, walked back in the foyer past the marriage retreat table and was like, I don't need that. Marriage doesn't need that. What if I signed up for that? What would everybody else think about me? I've worked too hard to protect this image that I've created of myself, of my marriage, of my family. Pride is very subtle. Proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Proud people wait for the other person to come and ask for forgiveness when there's a misunderstanding or conflict in their relationship. And lastly, proud people think that their gifts are better than others and that their service is more important. You see, when we begin to identify the way that pride exists in our hearts and the way that it expresses itself in our lives... We would do very well to realize the ways in which it does that so that we can attack it, right? So that we can uproot it out of our lives. But you see, as I said before, when pride manifests itself in individuals, when individuals get into a large group, it begins to change the way it manifests itself. On the back of your bulletin, if we would hold up our church, hold up our church to this checklist, Fairlawn Mennonite Church, is pride existing in our congregation? Five things. First, a lack of investing in relationships. I don't have time to go do that. I don't have time to spend dinner with this person. I don't have time to have this conversation or that conversation. My time is too important to spend on other people. There's a lack of confession and repentance. I'm not going to go talk to them about it. They were the one that offended me. Why would I go talk to them about it? As a result, there's a root of bitterness that begins to rise and gossip begins to fly. Can you believe what they said about me? Ministries begin competing against each other. And there's an overall lack of service in the church. People not desiring to serve one another. Could we be honest with ourselves and say that maybe some of these things exist here at Fairlawn? Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But, verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
You see, unity is something that uh, when pride manifests itself in the church, unity begins to corrode because we begin to lose sight of what unites us together, namely Jesus and the gospel. We begin to lose sight of him and we begin to place our thoughts and our eyes not on the people around us, but on ourselves. But Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. And this is something that we have to do in our mind and in our heart before it ever becomes an action. But it should not stay merely in our minds and in our hearts, but it should flow out of us in service to one another. Our mindset should be that of how can I serve those around me? You see, unity must be actively built up and protected. When we serve each other humbly, unity is built up and unity is protected. In Paul's mind, there is no concept of people who are part of the body of Christ who are not actively serving the body in some capacity. That's why he talks about the Corinthian church, the spiritual gifts, right? God has given each and every single one of us a gift, not to hold in our hearts or not to sit on, but to use to build up the body of Christ. And as we serve one another, this will also cultivate humility in our hearts. It will cause pride to shrink and humility to grow. So this is the issue. A prideful heart is what the issue was in the Philippian church, and it was being expressed in rivalry and selfishness and conceit. Now Paul turns to the gospel and closes out with showing us Jesus for two reasons. First, to teach us how to be humble, and secondly, to humble us. He says this, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. First, Paul gives us a picture of heaven. He gives us a picture of what happened before God came down in the person of Jesus. There was humility in heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to count others more significant than myself by coming down and taking on flesh. Do we take the time to consider this? God humbles himself and takes on flesh. Jesus, being in the form of the creator, willingly takes on the form of that which he had created. What humility. And Paul says that for God to take on flesh was for him to become nothing. That for God to look like us was for him to become nothing. One of the most effective ways to level pride in our hearts is to reflect often on the vast chasm that exists between us and God. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God is so glorious that for him to take on the form of you and I was for him to become nothing. When we reflect on the chasm that exists between us and God, between his majesty and our lowliness, between his power and our weakness, between his holiness and our sinfulness. Pride 
is uprooted in our lives. And why is that? You see, the only way that pride can grow and increase in our hearts is when we begin to create the thought that we're better than the people sitting to the right and to the left of us, and then we begin to judge ourselves by them. That's how pride grows. There is no room for pride in our hearts when we turn our eyes off of the people around us and look at Jesus and look at God. There is no comparing us to him. Paul is seeking to teach us how to be humble and to humble us. But Jesus didn't just have humility in heaven. He didn't just come down to us. He also uh, became the servant of man and the savior of man when he was here. If you were God, think about it. If you were God and you were like, yeah, okay, I'll humble myself and I'll take on flesh, what would you think that you would do when you got here to earth? Well, as I thought about it, I was like, well, if I was God and I was going to take on flesh, I would come down to earth and I would rule over the people that I created as their king with an iron fist. But that's not the picture we see. Jesus not only shows humility in heaven, but he shows humility on earth by becoming the servant of man. He invests in people's lives. He takes the time to have the conversation with them. He cares for people. He serves people. He healed them. He encouraged them. He corrected them. He loved them. He washed their feet. But not only did he serve man in this way, he also became the savior of man by considering the needs of others above his own, even unto death. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to give you a little picture of where the rubber met the road for Jesus in terms of becoming obedient to the point of death. Luke twenty two forty two, 42, we get the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours away before he would go to the cross and take the wrath of God for God's people. And this is what Jesus cries out. He says, Father, if you are, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, the cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that, God, if there's a way that you can get me out of this, that would be awesome. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. This is the most amazing example that will ever exist of someone looking to the needs of others above their own. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to consider the need of those sinners to be reconciled to God greater than my need to not go to the cross. And so he willingly submits and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, exemplifying the perfect example how to love and serve others selflessly. 
As I was reading this text and studying it, I came to this last portion of the exaltation of Jesus and began to ask myself the question, why? I mean, Paul is talking about teaching us how to be humble, right? He's using the example of Jesus. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Let me show you how to be humble. Here's Jesus. Why not end there? Why not end with becoming obedient to the point of death? That's the example, right? We see what Paul is doing by closing out with the exaltation of Jesus is he's humbling us. He's humbling us. Allow me to read it. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful picture. Timothy Keller gives us a little insight as to why Paul would uh, close out with this portion of Jesus' exaltation. He says this, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I find it amazing in the structure of the text how this happens. Paul begins by talking about the Philippian church, addressing their need for unity, addressing the pride that exists within them, turns to the example of Jesus to teach us how to be humble, and then ends by completely turning our eyes off of ourselves and off of our situation and turning them to the exalted Jesus as a way to humble us. As a way to say, this life, the Christian life that you live in and life in general, is not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about worshiping Him as Lord. Paul effectively says, stop thinking about yourself. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to the gospel. Paul's desire for us is to be united in the gospel, is to be united in Christ. Unity is built up by humble service, humbly serving each other. We see that in the example of Jesus. And Paul concludes with a beautiful picture of the exalted Jesus, which will level any pride left in our hearts. Paul's call to us is one of unity through gospel thinking and humble service. That's the call. That that is what exemplifies living a life worthy of the gospel. I'd like to conclude, uh, and these are in your bulletin as well, by giving you eight very practical things. And we've mentioned uh, to some degree all of them here this morning. Eight practical things that you can do to kill pride and to cultivate humility in your lives. And I can't take credit for these. These are part of the book uh, that I referenced earlier, Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. I commend that to you as an excellent uh, resource on pride and humility Uh, Let's look at these eight things as we close. First, begin your day 
by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for him. Remember what the definition of pride is? I don't need God. I don't need God. Acknowledge your dependence on him and your need for him. Number two, practice the spiritual disciplines, prayer, study of God's word, and worship. Begin to get your mind off of yourself. Turn it to God and turn it to others. At the end of each day, transfer the glory to God. The second part of the definition is taking the glory that is rightly due God's name. At the end of the day, make it a habit to say, God, anything good that came of this day in me was because of your good hand on me. All of the glory is due to you. Number four, study the attributes of God and the doctrine of sin. Paul's vast chasm that exists between us and God. The more that we get our eyes off of ourselves and get them onto studying who Jesus is and who God is, but likewise how sinful we are, the more pride begins to diminish in our hearts. Because again, we begin to compare ourselves with him versus comparing ourselves with each other. Number five, identify the way that God is working in others' lives. Begin to stop having such a critical mindset and thought life about the people around you and begin to see the good ways that God is working in other people's lives and begin to encourage them in those things. Invite and pursue correction, realizing that none of us is perfect. Encourage and serve others each and every day. Yet again, turning outside of ourselves and looking to the needs of others. And lastly and most importantly, reflect on the wonder of the cross. Moment by moment, day by day. Reflect on the wonder of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that uh, our eyes can be turned to him and they ought to be turned to him at each moment of each day, realizing how insignificant we are in light of how great he is. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would help us to be humble people who serve one another. I pray that you would begin to correct the pride in our hearts, whatever way it manifests itself, and that we would begin to look to the needs of others above our own. And that as this happens, that the unity of our church would grow, that the unity of our church would expand, and that we would be a a close-knit of brothers and sisters in Christ who just beautifully display your self-serving gospel. Make this a reality in our hearts, God. Pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.